Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. And as always I hope you enjoy the narration and if you do please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 353 No Time to Die It had been a hectic week for Titania and her remaining council members who still supported her. She had to organize the remaining people and the sudden influx of refugees who came pouring out of the woods to manage food supplies and scavenge teams. Thankfully, with the autumn, there were plenty of wild fruits and tubers to be foraged and food, but also the dangers of goblins and wild creatures. But with the onset of autumn, the colder weather would require her people to have warm clothes and firewood to keep them warm at night. And there was the other faction, led by Lord Taran and Devlin, who advocated against her decision to abandon Norsalm entirely. In the end, the people were split into two sides, with one side wanting to stay to rebuild while the other wanting to leave to find other pastures. Luckily for Titania, Captain James of the UN had stepped in and proposed to be the neutral party to prevent a fight for resources from both sides. He had the leaders from both sides agree to cooperate and share their scant resources here, while the UN prepared to pull the forces back to Orwell's point. On the plus side, both her scheming brothers had disappeared when the crazies attacked the estate, most likely dead or converted by the mad cult. She didn't bother to spare any effort or energy to find out what really had happened to them. Titania put down the counting scrolls and left a warm, stuffy tent that was heated by a small brazier. Instantly, the cold air hit her when she felt the tent and let her cold air refresh herself. Hundreds of tents of all shapes and colors stretched out into a haphazard way as refugees of Norsalm gathered together for protection. She could see the Imperial soldiers patrolling around the tents to prevent fights and theft, while families gathered together around campfires or braziers to share warmth and food. Hey... A voice called out from behind her and she smiled and recognized the voice. What are you doing out in the cold? Clearing my mind, Titania replied without turning around. Too many things in my head. Sure, Merle sat down on the ground next to her. Are you feeling okay? Titania nodded before she sat down next to him. Yes, just feeling tired, that's all. Well, another few more days and we'll be leaving this place, Merle said in a light tone. Yes, Titania replied softly. Just a few more days. Cheer up, Moles encouraged Titania. When we get back, I'll bring you to see the rest of my gang. Haven, Sawtooth Mountain Airbase. The twin propeller engines of the FB-1 slowly spun down and the side bedding hatch popped out. Four marines in dress uniforms and white gloves climbed into the hatch and reappeared shortly with a casket. One by one, wooden caskets were carefully carried off from the aircraft into the hangar and taxied next to it. Each casket had the recovered UN flag on white, blue, and red gold trimmings were sat coldly on the hangar, waiting for any family members to be identified before they were processed to military cemetery. Captain Blake stood with Commander Ford, Colonel Frank, and the intelligence officer Lieutenant Tavar, watching the detail move the coffins off the aircraft in silence. Seventeen dead, fifty-six wounded in various conditions. Colonel Frank stated as the Marine detail gave a salute to the officers before the Marine detail marched off. We lost 13 owls, one goblin, two orcs, and one of us, Frank continued as he stared at the caskets. The most crippling damage to the 1st Battalion took was an unexpected explosion of their outright killed off 10 of our Marines and wounded over 30 men. What is the investigation regarding the cause of the explosion? Commander Ford asked. Magister Thorne and the occult intelligence both had come to the same conclusion, Lieutenant Tavor replied. 
Residue readings of the site had our Mew sensors going off the charts and even the mage's use of magic detection spells came up with the same readings. The magic residue left behind is clearly of divine nature, Lieutenant Tevar said. We are not looking at just a mild concentration like the aftermath of a spell, but rather the readings of over 18,000 MSB per hour. 18k? Blake turned his attention to Lynn and Tavar in shock. That high? Yes, sir, Lieutenant Tavar nodded. It is higher than the records of the Chernobyl incident. But it's magic or moo radiation, as Dr. Sharon named it, Lieutenant Tavar added. There is no risk of acute radiation sickness. But we do know that while it caused any side effects to the Marines exposed to this amount of moo radiation, Lieutenant Tavar said, Dr. Sharon has exposed the Marines placed under quarantine and observation for any signs of side effects. Why did Magister Thorne suspect that it was caused by the death of a god? Colonel Frank asked. His words were the crater left behind by the explosion was similar to the drawings and depictions of death of a divine being from the only copies of the Chronicles of the Aged Gods, replied Lieutenant Tavar. And I too seem to have read the Chronicles he mentioned, and it does seem similar. So we destroyed a goddess, Blake asked. Hedone! If our investigations are true, Lieutenant Tavar nodded, yes, we had killed Hedoni, the daughter of the Greek god Eros, as also known as Cupid and Psyche. She is a daemons or a spirit that is a personification of a goddess of pleasure, enjoyment, and delight. Hence, with her powers, it was easy for her to control the will of people, Lieutenant Tavar summarized from his notes. The citizens of Norsalm turning crazy was caused by her handiwork, stripping them of the inhibitory controls. Inhibitory controls are also known as a response inhibition to cognitive processing and more specifically, the executive functions. That permits an individual to inhibit their impulses and nature, habitual or dominant behavioral responses to stimuli in order to select more appropriate behavior that is consistent with completing their goals, Lieutenant Tavar explained. In short, she rewrites a person's self-control leading them to act on the base instincts, needs and desires. An example would be how the princess affects the captain. Lieutenant Tavar was saying halfway when the Captain Blake coughed loudly and cleared his throat to interrupt. I think we understand that point, Lieutenant. Blake gave a warning look at Tavar, who shut his mouth while the rest of the officers snickered. An important question, Blake continued as if nothing was wrong. Does this mean that each guard blows up like the microfusion reactor going critical each time we defeat them? Loud snap and flutter of sails were like the melody to the fleet master to John's ears as a flagship, the Talon, rose up and down with the waves. He was so bored of this time on land and was looking forward to making a trip down to Haven again and for the invitation to the wedding that he once loved interest. He turned behind and saw the dark, sleek hull of the triple-decker Heart of Courage, the flagship of the first fleet master Koza Toka, following behind him. The further back, several more escorts and merchant ships bearing gifts for the wedding followed docilely black chicks. The first fleet master was very interested in the UN and its machine magic. He personally wanted to see it with his own eyes if the marvel was described by the fleet masters, and also to personally determine the merits of a long-term alliance. Hence, when the invitation was given out for the wedding, the fleet master jumped on as chance and had Dijon lead the way, while the rest remained behind to settle their isle's affairs, especially in the new cities that they had annexed away from the old two nations' alliance that had lost the war with the empire. Owing to the fact that the coastal cities would be reinforced by the isles and defective population of two nations' alliance preferred the isles over the empire. Many towns and coastal cities swore allegiance to the Isles, increasing their influence on the mainland. 
While skirmishes broke out amongst the Isles, soldiers, and Imperial Army, there wasn't much major push by the Empire, probably due to the fact that the rock was missing. This allowed the Isles and the remnants of the two nations to consolidate their forces and create a defensive border. With the navy providing heavy artillery support, the Imperial Army couldn't threaten the coastal cities at all, and with the flood of refugees providing manpower to the land and people's scarce isles, it was like a blessing from the gods. The John turned his focus back to the clear seas, noting the lack of goblin pirates' sights and smiled, knowing that the UN had been busy eradicating the green scourge of the seas. It gave him a sense of security, knowing that once these seas were safe, trade could flourish and make him richer. Another two weeks of sailing, and the fleet would arrive at Far Harbor. Dijon grinned. Oh, he missed the burgles, pizzas, and root beer, and he was so looking forward to seeing the stern face of the first fleet master changing once he experienced all of these new and wonderful things. Outskirts of the town of Forledge, a rustle of leaves startled the group of children foraging for wild autumn greens and mushrooms. The eldest of the children, armed with a sharpened wooden spear, quickly imposed himself between the rest of the children and the source of the disturbance. The children used the dangers of the forest quickly backed away, using the well-worn forest trail that led towards several farms in the distance. Not long after that, the children disappeared. The undergrowth parted when several figures in blue-green digital camera uniforms appeared. God damn it, recruit clumsy! A fuming human smacked hard, helmeted head of a soldier crouching with his weapon aiming at a security cordon. My grandma could walk softer than you in a goddamn dragon's cave. Sir? Yes, sir? The apologetic recruit replied, resisting the urge to snap to attention. If he did that while supposedly providing security, he won't just get chewed out. Freshly minted Second Lieutenant Collins shook his head at the antics of the green troops under his command. This batch was supposed to perform a low-level insertion and ground reconnaissance mission to Foldage without alerting any of the locals, but it seemed like that was a bust this time. Mission failed, Collins growled. Pull back to the camp and erase all traces. Are you passing here? Sir? Yes, sir. The platoon echoed out as they quickly made sure the disturbance on the grounds were properly messed up to remove any traces of boot prints before they fell back in order. Collins and a couple drill sergeants remained behind, double-checking the recruits' work before they followed the platoon. Only Collins remained standing at the edge of the forest as he scanned the flat farm fields of the tiny walls of the town before he followed the rest. After trekking for an hour, they reached the open clearing with the neat rows and tents and sentries on perimeter duty. Collins had the drill sergeants take over as he headed towards the command tent. Sir, the recruits acting as a command staff quickly greeted him as he entered and nodded. Are the men ready? he asked the command staff. Acting company commander, recruit Gavin of Blackvale, once a night captain, turned slave, stood at attention, and replied sharply, Sir, yes, sir. Good, Collins nodded. First company and second company will push forward as planned once we've received word from third and fourth company. This will be you and your men's first actual live-firing combat mission. Once the companies are in position, we'll move to take over Forledge. End of chapter Chapter 354 Steening a Town Forledge North Star Trading Company The four business directors of North Star Trading sat around a coffee table at Etero's office. Each of them had a grim expression on their faces while their cups of tea had long turned cold in the early hours of the morning. The polite knock came from the door of the office and everyone in the room tensed up. 
Some of them gripped a half, drew their swords, and the door opened, revealing a clerk of the North Star training uniform. Sirs, they are here. The fat figure of Etero finally gave a deep sigh and looked at the rest of his companions and said, It's time. The other three nodded and picked up a piece of white cloth from the coffee table and tied it around their biceps. Etero stood up and watched the three follow his clerk out and said, Stay safe, my brothers. The three turned around and smiled. Wait for us to return in victory and keep the bottle of your finest ready to be opened when we come back. Edro smiled back and watched his buddies went downstairs, joining dozens of other armed and smuggled weapons and white armbands. He returned to his seat and slumped down tidily and prayed for his brothers to survive. Outskirts of foliage, zero four, zero five hours. The figures slowly crept forward out of the forest and fields, heading towards the dark walls of the town. They bypassed the farms and shanties quietly before they stopped before the massive closed town gates and waited. Not long, the lantern flashed on top of the wall and the waiting figures replied with a flashlight of their own. A set of predetermined light signals were exchanged and Lieutenant Collins hissed. Take out the guards now, go! The sleepy guards outside the walls were quickly and quietly dispatched and the recruits pushed forward and waited for the side door of the gate to open. As they waited anxiously, the side door of the gate creaked out, and a white armband figure with a cloth mask over his face waved the soldiers in. Soldier recruits rushed in under the guidance of their instructors, and they spread out and took up positions covering the town. Lieutenant Collins came up with a group of masked owls with white armbands and introduced himself. United Nations Marines Lieutenant Collins, who is in charge here? Me. A beefy-looking elf stepped forward. He held a long-handed blacksmith hammer, and his hands had pulled down a cloth mask covering his face, exposing a face covered in a thick, bushy beard. Ah, it's hard to breathe and talk in these. The beefy elf took the breath and exhaled before breaking out in a smile and greeted Collins. I'm called Bok, a blacksmith here. I led these guys here. Bok, the blacksmith, gestured to the group of people, numbering over twenty. We were all here, suffered some grievances from the Empire, and are willing to follow your soldiers. Lieutenant Collins nodded and quickly stated his needs. I need people who know the streets and foliage inside and out. I need them to guide my men in the town. Bok turned and pointed to a few youngsters in the group. They know the streets pretty well and can lead your men wherever they need to go. Good. Lieutenant Collins nodded and called in his company, platoon leaders, and NCOs over. I want the companies to split up and start hitting the barracks, downwatch, administration building, the guilds, and the local commander and governor's mansions. Collins eyed each commander. As planned before, a company will hit the barracks, B company will go for the town watch, C company will push the hall, the main plaza, and the town hall, D and E company will take the guilds, and F company will take the mansions. These guys will act as their guides. Lieutenant Collins gestured to the owls recommended by Bok. Each platoon grab one guide and move out. And, as we have spoken before, a single platoon from G Company is to hold each of the gates. No one in and no one out until this is all over, Collins said. Sir? Yes, sir. The commanders replied. And last of all, we have friendlies in town, Collins gestured to the white armband. I don't want any friendly fire. Move out. Foreledge, 0500 hours. Night watchman Ferris was turning 42 this winter. He had worked as a watchman for over 10 years, mostly in the night shift. Tonight, he had broken up two fights in a separate bars and dumped the offenders into the town jail to sleep off their drunkenness. But he had felt a sense of strangeness in the town that night. Something 
feels off. It was like a gut feeling that something was wrong, but something bad was about to happen. Yet, he couldn't tell the rest as they would just tease him and laugh at his worries. Therefore, he could only force himself to stay awake and as alert as possible. But other than the two incidents with the drunks, the night till the morning was peaceful. He yawned and rubbed his tired eyes as he sat on a five-story high watchtower that allowed him a view of the surroundings. As he was watching, thinking to himself that he was just getting old and worrying too much, he spotted several shadows moving along the streets. He stood closer to the edge and peered down into the darkness. The street's glow lamps had long dimmed down as the energy of them had depleted hours ago. He looked long and hard, but the shadows had stopped moving. Scratching his balding head, wondering if he was seeing things before he returned to his seat while rubbing his tired eyes. 0515 hours. The section's marksman kept his scope on the watchtower, only calling out to the rest when he had disappeared out of view. Go! The rest of the section detached themselves from the shadows of the wall and hurried forward again, while another section crossed the open street. They were nearly spotted by the watchman in the tower when his section dashed across the street. Luckily, the lighting was bad or the watchman would have seen them go by now. He was sure that they would be chewed out by the drill sergeant later if they survived this. 0530 hours. Watchman Ferris yawned again and stood up to stretch his legs, walking around the tower of a small 5x5 perimeter. His parallax vision spotted some movement and he paused in his stretching and turned to look, and this time he was sure he'd seen things... Shadows were moving along the sides of the streets, disappearing into walls and reappearing again. He stared in fright, thinking he saw some supernatural creature of the night, but just nice. One of the streets was slightly better lit, and the inn along the street had a couple of properly maintained glow lanterns hanging outside the facade. The shadows turned into shapes of arms and legs, and Ferris realized that those were not some unnatural creatures of the dark, but were people running around in the cover of the dark. What urgent matter requires this many people to be out in the streets at such an ungodly hour? He wondered as he started his movement below him. Suddenly, it dawned on him that these people must be up to some kind of evil business to be out at such a time. They could be raiders or bandits. He quickly slipped on his crossbow belt hook and into his belt and picked up his uncocked crossbow next to him and quickly armed it by hooking it into the bolt string and his belt and stepping on the stirrup at the head of the crossbow and cocked the bolt's arms back. He dropped the bolt into the crossbow and leaned over the tower and yelled out loudly, You people down there, stop in the name of the law. In the name of the law, a silent morning was suddenly broken into loud words which froze the entire platoon heading towards the town guilds for a second. The soldier recruits instinctively ducked back into the shadows and raised their weapons up. The marksman paused at the shout and threw the side against the wall and leaned out and he scoped M1, aiming at the watchtower again. You there, hiding in the shadows like thieves coming out now. Crap. The acting platoon leader cursed as he crouched down low, keeping the shadows and ran forward to get a better view of what was going on. Sir! Marksman called out as his reticle was placed on the face of the man yelling at the brazier fire. I got him in my sights. At the same time, some of the windows in the townhouses started to light up and the occupants were roused by the noise made by the watchman. We've been spotted, the acting platoon leader hissed in the radio as set as a signaler. Orders! Roger, acting platoon leader, threw his handset over the signal and ordered the marksman, Take the shot, go loud. The marksman barely responded to his platoon leader. He just held his breath and gently squeezed the trigger, feeling the surprised kick of the rifle butt into his shoulder, and the head of the scope disappeared. 
The sudden roar of his rifle was like a herald of sleeping people at full edge. Curious and angry citizens opened their windows to find the source of the noise, while others slept in on bliss. Unknown in the changes that were coming like a storm. Go! The acting platoon leader yelled, ignoring all attempts at stealth. Move fast! The platoon's job was to secure the guilds, making sure that none made any contact with the communication with the outside world, and preventing any attempt for the girls like the adventurous girl to form any resistance. The men of D&E Company charged forward, following the directions of the guides and quickly came to the street where the town's girls were at. Fallage, North Star Trading Company, 0535 hours. The sudden thunder jolted Etro awake from his sleep on the chair. He hurriedly looked around his office, thinking the Imperial troops had stormed into his office to arrest him on charges of treason. He patted his heaving chest when he noticed that he was alone, making him wonder what was that noise. Etro stood up and looked out of his window worriedly as he wondered how his friends were doing. Several months ago, ever since he met up with his old friend Tyria, he'd been working with the rebels to supply them food secretly. As time went on, those rebels started wanting him to do more, like providing information about the Empire, like the numbers and the local garrison, who was the commander and other details. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, a strange short-eared man claiming to be from the United Nations came to find him and told him that the rebels were now part of the new nation. He wanted him to continue to provide information and maps of the Empire, and also people who were disgruntled with the Empire and recruit them. It was easy to find people unhappy or had a grudge with the Empire, especially in a border town like Fallage, where exiles and people with questionable pasts came to hide. It was also helped that Fallage used to be a part of the Gold Rose Kingdom, thus a small group of resistance was formed in Fallage and its members had swelled over the months. And now this, Etro thought as he looked out the window. He had spoken with strange short-eared man a couple months ago about how to capture Fallage rapidly without alerting the Empire. He did not expect the day to come, and now his friends were out there fighting to overthrow the Empire in this town while he stood here safely, wishing that he could do more. End of chapter. Chapter 355. Chicken Power. UNS Singapore Captain's Office. Blake's eyebrows rose up as he read the report while his senior officers waited patiently with smiles on their faces. No wounded and zero deaths on our side. Yes, sir, Colonel Frank replied cheerfully. Some deaths and wounded on the Empire side, but basically it can't be easier than stealing candy from a baby. Our troops have taken foliage in barely three hours, of course, not counting the time it took to march onto the town, Colonel Frank continued. Hell, should have been seen the citizens' faces when they woke up this morning. All of them can't believe that Fallhedge is no longer under the Empire's control, Colonel Frank proudly said, and all done by our recruits. Nice, Blake nodded and placed the report down. Very smooth. So, and now we have another town on the map to pin our flag on. So who's taking over the governor, Blake asked. That would be Etero, sir, Lieutenant Tavar said. He was our first choice and also quite respected businessman there. The merchant who was doing all the trading with us, Blake mentally recalled the name. And the people of Fallage, how was their response to all of this? Mostly shock and surprise, Lieutenant Tavar replied. Give them a week before they can be certain of their mood, but I had a local resistance members to help do some propaganda for us. Okay, good, Blake nodded. Make sure to keep the full age happy. Also, check for cults and make any other threats. I don't want any more hidden surprises. 
Yes, sir, Lieutenant Tavar nodded. Now, once Ball H is settled down and the new recruits passed out from basic, Blake said, I want a line of defenses pushed out from Fall H to Orwell's Point, starting with the 20 kilometers. Once we establish a perimeter, we push our defenses line more, till we get a defensive zone of at least 100 kilometers. Blake pointed to the map on the wall. So basically, you want to push our borders out to 100 kilometers? Colonel Frank asked. Yes, Blake nodded. With the new batch of recruits passing out from basic, we would be at another two battalions and any leftover manpower we redistribute to the Navy and Air Force. With five battalions on hand, we could hold our cities and also maintain a defensive line against the Empire, Blake said. And with the Orcs starting their basic training soon, once they are done, our ground forces will be able to brigade strength. I want our ground forces to be at least a division strong, Blake continued. That means at least 10,000 fighting men or women and not counting the support elements. Commander Ford gave a low whistle. 10,000 troops? Our population now doesn't even have 15,000. If you don't count Orwell's Point and Fallage. I know, Blake replied. We will recruit directly from anyone who is willing to give up their previous life and join us. I plan to follow what the Romans and the ancient times did offering anyone who signs up in the military for ten years and get a piece of land when they retire. Hmm, that, that might work. Commander Ford bobbed his head as he thought it over. Should be attractive for ex-slaves at least. I'm sure the orcs will be attracted too, Colonel Franklin added. Their land was pretty devastated by the fires. Well, I hope so, Blake nodded. Now the next thing. I've been hearing that there is an upsurge of goblins volunteering for military service. Colonel Frank shook his head in defeat and said, Sadly, yes. Apparently someone spread out how one of their own had died heroically in Battle of Norsholm, Colonel Frank explained, and with the ceremonial parade and one of their own being decorated, Greg the Goblin has hailed as a martyr for goblins. Now every Tom, Dick, and Goblin wants to sign up and serve. Goblins are pretty handy with the hands machinery, Commander Ford grinned. They like machines and a lot, and I think of them as some kind of god. Yeah, they pretty much integrated well with the heavy industries, Colonel Frank said. At least a quarter of our machines and techs are goblins. Seriously, I really don't mind. I mean, we're desperately short-handed for mechanics and technicians. Recruit who you need to, Blake finally said. But don't take too much of one manpower away from our heavy industries. We still need some skilled hands there. Anything else that's urgent? Blake asked as around the table. Nope, then meeting is done. Well, next month's your wedding, Commander Ford grinned. How's everything? Um, Blake rubbed his face and gave a slight grin. Well, uh, I got wedding planners doing the work for me. I just need to turn up at the time. <laughs> well, we planned a bachelor's party for you. The officers all gave a wicked smile. Before we get you tied down, we're gonna party hard. Ha! Blake shook his head. We're all kind of lacking in the entertainment department here. No worries, Colonel Frank laughed. Marines know how to make a good party. I'm kind of worried about that. Blake looked at the expressions on the rest of the felt that he was going to be pranked badly by them. I think it's safer not to go. Don't be a chicken. United Nations, City of Haven, City Hall. Shireen stood still before several wall mirrors and secretly pleased with her dress and looks. She tilted left and right looking at her own reflection in the mirrors wearing her custom-made wedding dress. It's a little too loose in the waist. The matronly-looking seamstress commented as she poked a few needles here and there, tightening the dress. Better? Hmm. Shireen turned her body to see in the mirror. I think so, too. 
After the fitting of her dress, her assistants barraged her with a whole lot of questions, like its color matches that and if her guest's seating were correct. Finally, after an hour of intense discussion with the wedding planners and her assistants, they finally left satisfied and her alone in her office nesting a headache and a sore shoulders. She did not know that there were so many details to handle for a wedding and was glad that she'd followed Blake's advice to get some wedding planners to do everything. She took a sip of her tepid tea and returned to work, seeing the charts and reports of the city. No. Nation. Now that the United Nations not only consisted of a single growing city, but two, and had several small farming communities, resource outposts, and newly annexed town of Forlage to govern. Not counting the population in Forlage, the total population of the UN just jumped up from 12,000 to over 60,000, but only the population in Haven had some of advanced skills and knowledge to work the science and technology of the humans, while the rest just barely even had the basic knowledge and skills of the humans. I need more primary schools and technical schools to be built in Orwell's Point and Forlage, she mumbled to herself, and Forlage can be classified as a city instead of a town, judging by the population size. Shireen ticked off her fingers as she counted what she needed to kickstart the industrial might of the humans. Education for the masses, work and personal experience, cultural integration and laws. At least four items for now to get the new population to understand the new changes. And not only that, she thought, we need to improve the standard of living for the people in those places. Basic sanitation, clean water, housing, schools, medicine, electricity, radio communications, proper roads. Oh, also an airfield for both military and civil use. But the problem was how to get electric power to Orwell's point in foliage. Shireen wondered for a while, unable to think of a solution, before she picked up the telephone and consulted a list of numbers. She dialed for Chief Engineer Matt. Early half an hour which Shireen brewed a new pot of tea when her assistant knocked on the door and Chief Engineer Matt walked in. Tea? Oh, that'll be great, Princess, Matt grinned as he removed his coat. Weather is getting colder and colder. She poured a mug of tea and passed it over to Matt, who sat down in front of the work desk. As said over the phone, I have some issues with power generation that I need to discuss with you. Sure, go ahead. Matt warmed his hands with the mug before taking a sip. We need to provide power to the new cities we took, especially Orwell's Point, Shireen said. Now that the military is using portable power generators for the needs, we need something more permanent and enough output for the city's needs. Hmm... Matt frowned as he tried to recall the geography of the terrain around Orwell's Point. Now we need a land survey data report to see what I could be done. We could run basic coal power plant first, Matt said, and then find alternatives later if we really need the power now. Coal? Shireen frowned, but it's going to be winter in a few months and there's no proper heaters for the people. Coal will be in great demand for heating the houses. True, Matt nodded. Well, we can do solar or wind power, but it's going to be a hell of expensive to ship all the parts and technology over. Not to mention, we need a station skilled people there to manage the tech. Yes, we need something simple and easy for the city, Shireen said, and our coffers are not exactly overflowing. Okay, I'll think of something up once I get a land survey report, Matt sighed. Something good, cheap and fast to learn. Shireen gave Matt an impish smile. I knew I could count on you. Ugh. Please don't try and charm me. It only works on the captain. United Nations Ordnance Research Facility Hangar 4 Spaceman Senior Taijun Pak and the Japanese buddy Spaceman Hideo Kochi were hunched over a mechanical contraption inside one corner of the hangar. 
Four five-meter-tall protective sheets formed a stall blocked all view from any spying eyes while surrounded by several large crates further to hide it from view. Caught up in the work, both men did not notice the side of the sheets being dragged back and Chief Engineer Matt came in. Matt sucked in a deep breath as he saw the mischief the two were up to. The three-meter mechanical contraption with a pair of backward-bending legs and surrounded by scaffolding and its body internals exposed as both men fussed over it. It looked like a half a body of a combat helo mated with a pair of chicken legs at the bottom. Cables, machinery parts were all over the, as Matt walked around and clearly bipedal walker while shaking his head. He stood below both men who were still tinkering away in some part of the mecca and yelled, What the frick is this? Both men jumped up in surprise and even Hideo banged his head against the frame of the mecca as he ducked his head out. Both men quickly snapped to attention and reported in unison, Nothing, chief. Nothing, Matt sneered as he wrapped his knuckles against the metal rods on the side of the legs. You call this nothing. It's not a Gundam, chief, Tai Jun replied stiffly. What? Matt felt a headache coming on. I don't know what it is, but both of you are working on an unauthorized project using unauthorized funds and parts for your own use. But chief, Hideo protested, if we can get this working, it will be useful to all of us. And pray... Please tell me, before I wrangle your necks like chickens, what a chicken crap is this? Matt glowed as he climbed up the ladder and stood before the two Asians. Um, it's kind of like an ATST walker from Star Wars. End of chapter. Chapter 356 City of Haven. United Nations City of Haven Hotel de Locus. Titania curled up like a shrimp and burrowed deeper into the sheets and pillows. It felt heavenly, making her unwilling to get up from the bed, despite the bright sunlight coming in from the windows that was telling her mind that it was morning and it was time to get up. Suddenly, like a switch being flipped on, she jolted up from the seats and looked around, surprised at her unfamiliar surroundings. She found herself at a huge bed alone with the softest sheets imaginable and the room that she was in was wall windows where clear skies could be seen. The decor of the room was strangely alien, filled with sofas in hues of light grey while the walls were ivory. Her cream-toned bed sat on top of the thick, rich carpet while the floor was tiled in marble. Finally, the last vestiges of sleep left her mind, and she briefly remembered that she had got rushed off into something called a pain which surprisingly loud and noisy, but it flew in and the air and she was told that it was faster than using dragons. She was nervous at first, but after the frightening shakes and bumps were gone, the novelty wore off. She actually fell asleep on the flight. A few hours later, she was woken up by moles and told that they had arrived in Sawtooth Mountain Air Base, which they met some high-ranking and important people before they were whisked off to the capital by the United Nations. By the time they reached the city... It was also past midnight. She barely saw much, except for the streets that were incredibly clean and was brightly lit even after so late, and she and her people were brought to the strange tower which she had to crane her neck all the way up to see, but couldn't see the roof. Despite being tired, she noticed with shock that most of the buildings in the city seemed to have walls made out of glass, and it's not low-quality glass either, unlike the murky or tainted glass of the Empire. To be able to have a whole crystal clear glass, meaning that the place was most probably the nobles or wealthy stayed. She was ushered into a lounge area with a counter at the end and several sets of sofas and chairs forming a resting area. The floor was tiled in some kind of material that glittered from the bright chandeliers and lamps, giving the lounge a classy feel. 
Several smartly uniformed servants bowed as she and her group entered, and they led them to pair of strange golden doors. She heard the ding sound, and the golden door slid open soundlessly, and surprising her and her people. To their confusion, the doors did not lead anywhere, only a small, closet-sized room. Mills at his side just grinned and gestured for them to enter. When they hesitated, he gave a chuckle and entered the closet. Titania felt silly as she stepped into the closet and wondered what will happen with the rest slowly and entered nervously. Once everyone was inside, a uniformed servant touched some small runes on the side of the door which glowed and the door slid closed silently, trapping them inside. She nervously glanced at Mills who gave a reassuring smile back as she calmed down, putting her trust in him not to harm her and her people. A short while later, and there was another ding and the sight shaking as the closet doors opened again. The servant gestured for them to exit, and they did in a confused manner as they entered a carpeted hallway with doors on both sides. Mills walloped behind the irritating superior smirk on his face that made Titania want to hit him. The servants started to open up the doors and Titania realized that these were rooms. It was amazing Did they enter some kind of magic portal or something. She quietly observed each opened room and found it was all similar, with a set of chairs and a low table, a large bed and some sort of black painting. The servants were busy explaining how everything worked and her people just as Mills tapped her shoulder. Come on, this way. Mills gestured to her and followed the other servant. She'll bring you to your room. They entered the golden closet again, and after another ding, they exited onto another hallway, which looked different from the earlier one. Is this some kind of magic? She asked Mills in a small voice. Instead of answering immediately, Mills giggled and patted her head. No, silly, we're just on another floor. But, but, she wanted to ask more, but felt too embarrassed to, especially seeing Mills's teasing look, making her cheeks turn warm. Hmm, fine. The servant led them to the end of the hallway and opened up to a pair of double doors. She gave a half bow and a gesture for Titania and her maids to enter. After that, the servant started to teach her maids on how some of the things functioned while she was too tired to listen. She slumped down on the rich-looking sofa and noticed the three sides of the walls had curtains, but she was too lazy to move. Mills shook his head at the antics and gave her another pat. Just get some rest, and I'll see you in the morning. Sure, the Tanya mumbled as she sank down into the sofa. See you tomorrow. Now, she stood on the side of her bed and stared out of the window, admiring the view. Her maids must have made changes to her clothes last night before putting her into bed as she was wearing a sleeping gown. She pushed open the balcony door and stepped onto the balcony, feeling awe from the city that spread out before her eyes. Dozens and dozens of high-rises rose up to touch the skies while the streets were perfectly straight or beautifully curved, making the city look like it was divided into squares and rectangles. Fast-moving carriages of the same kind that she'd seen the UN soldiers use were everywhere on the streets from the view of her balcony. She suddenly realized that the golden closet she took must have been some sort of magic device which moved people up and down the towers as she was very clearly high up. She felt a sense of vertigo as she leaned over the parapet of the balcony before she ducked her head back in and patted her chest, till she could not tear her eyes away from the spectacle that was before her eyes. Is this some kind of heaven? Haven Burgershack, third beat master Dijon was humming a happy tune as he bit into his second burgol. The soft, toasted bun mixed with the juicy fried verum patty and the mildly sweet and tangy mayonnaise sauce and the fresh, crunchy greens were like angels singing to his taste buds. 
He finished the Vurenburgel and few mouths and leaned back and satisfied burp before he took a sip of the refreshing root beer. What do you think, boss? First Fleet Master Kose wiped the sore stains from his moustache and napkin and nodded. I'm surprised. This is actually very tasty. See? I told you. Dijon gave a smug smile as he picked up some of the cheese fries and shoved them into his mouth. You need to try these too. Dragons love this. Kosei looked at the pile of golden sticks with a mix of red, yellow, and white sauce splattered on top and frowned. He gingerly picked up one of the fries with his fingers and watched Dijon happily help himself to some more and eating with relish before he took a nibble. Hmm. Kosei bubbed his head in agreement. I can understand why the dragons like these. <laughs> Dijon laughed heartily. You know, Akron wanted to bring the cuisine over to the Isles. This will make us a lot of gold. But, Kosei took another serving of fries. They are not willing to sell their recipe. No, Dijon sighed. They said something about franchising. We should pay them for an annual fee to use their name, products, and services. We have to sign an agreement if we want to sell food like this elsewhere. Interesting, Kosei replied. And how did the talks go? Akron says he need to work out the profit and costs first, Dijon gave a shrug. When the war on the horizon, suppliers are in high demand on our side, so we might not be able to afford the annual fees till this settles down. True, Kosei said. We had to focus on pacifying the mainland cities first. Once our hold is solidified on the mainland, we can then turn to the markets and make some more gold. There are a lot of things in here and innovations that would make the markets interested. Kose's eyes gleamed as he looked at the glass walls, carriages, glass, food, weapons, and even their magic. Kose and Dijon had arrived a couple days ago and their fleet, which remained docked at Far Harbor. They met up with the high-ranking officials before they took a fast-moving carriage that looked like a giant squashed snake, which the locals called a train. The ride was surprisingly smooth and fast, and made Kose want to get his hands on a few of these snake carriages, which could not only transport many people, but also goods and livestock rapidly over great distances. The only thing that disappointed him was that they did not catch a glimpse of the fabled naval iron ships of the UN. He had heard many stories from Dijon and the rest about how powerful and fast the ships of the UN Navy were. He did not fully trust the reports from them until he came here and saw all the strange and wonderful devices magically running. Kose would need to negotiate new deals with the United Nations to either build him or sell him their ships. He could imagine if they had a ship made of iron and with the speed several faster than the fastest wave runners, he could send that ship out to the Goblin Sea and across the sea of endless storms. Now feasting on the cheese fries and drinking root beer, Gose and Jezron started discussing the new deals to propose to the United Nations. Outskirts of Haven, Valley of the Wolves. A jeep grumbled in the dirt track and drove over the rustic gate with a large hanging signboard over the gate and read, Valley of the Wolves. Mole stopped the jeep before the cabin and looked around the place. The last time he came here, there was only a single barn and a cabin. Now the cabin looked enlarged and another barn was built. There was even a first-generation tractor parked under the open shed and bales of hay were stacked in neat blocks, forming a wall. The door to the cabin opened and a large, thick-set human stepped out wearing a wide-brim hat and work clothes. Bills. Hey, big guy. Moles gave a wide grin and gave Bartley a hug. Long time no see. Yes, replied Bartley, the ex-marine who had got dishonorably discharged from the marines for disobeying orders and abandoning his post. He was about to ask Mills what he was doing when he first spotted another person on the other side of the jeep. 
This is... I'm here to introduce you to someone. Merle's grinned as he reached to hold Titania's hand. This is Titania Rothschild. Meet Bartley, my best buddy. Wow. Bartley gave a silly smile. You found someone, finally. What finally? Merle's growled. I have a cue back home. Nice to meet you. Titania's hand shook with a bear-like human. Hey. Merle's expression turned serious. Got some bad news, too. We lost Drake. No, no. End of chapter. And that, my friends, is the end of this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the channel. There are numerous links down below. The easiest way would be to share this video and this channel to as many people as possible to help this channel grow. Your support is very much appreciated. And I will see you all in the next video. Cheers.